This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of emergency at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. I welcome you back to the podcast. It's been a rather busy summer here. I have five kids, and so life has been happening here, which is keeping me away from the computer and doing podcasts, but um, have been collecting some emails on some potential topics as well as ideas. One of those ideas came up this past week in our intensive care unit uh, when we admitted a woman who had rather severe lung disease, um, end-stage COPD with an inoperable lung cancer, home um, oxygen, and as these things typically happen, the patient was smoking on her oxygen, sustained some burns to her face, which were not uh, surgical and were not life-threatening, but did develop a rather deep third-degree burn to the lower extremities. And now we're faced with the prospect of having to operate on somebody with severe lung disease to do an operation of the leg. And this brings up the whole idea is what are some of the uh, perioperative evaluation of a person who has chronic lung disease? What are the effects of anesthesia on somebody with pre-existing lung disease uh, or a lung condition? And you need to be aware of these when you work in the intensive care unit or as you work as a surgeon because you could take a patient who is reasonably marginal and basically cause them to decompensate uh, such that a patient like this who, for instance, isn't on uh, chronic mechanical ventilation, you do a, a general anesthesia and they'll come back to the op- back to the intensive care unit on a ventilator and may be difficult, if not impossible, to get off the ventilator. And then you're faced with the question of perhaps by um, care providers or the family of, well, how is it that she was able to live without the ventilator before your surgery and then you did this operation and now you can't get her off the ventilator? What did you do wrong? And the real question is, did you do something wrong? And of course the answer is no. But there's a, a alteration in the patient's physiology when we go do operations. If you're a surgical resident who's listening to this, or you've ever even held a surgical textbook in your hand, you know that the first several chapters of a surgical textbook talk about an the patient's response to injury. That when you have an injury, you have very predictable alterations in a person's physiology to adapt to that injury. Surgery is an injury, and it is uh, it will produce the same injury response uh, physiology as a person who is in a motor vehicle crash or a gunshot wound in regards to upregulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines, improvements in cardiac outputs, uh, production of certain uh, proteins from the liver, and so forth. But what is the effect of an actual general anesthesia on somebody's pulmonary status? And that's what I want to focus on today. We really want to focus on what are the effects of a general anesthesia on somebody's overall pulmonary function. Now, there are a significant amount of respiratory changes that can be associated to anesthesia, anesthetics, and particularly general anesthetics. When somebody is uh, uh, administered a volatile anesthetic, uh, it does impair a patient's uh, lung immune function by decreasing the mucociliary function and the alveolar macrophage activity. Now, let's talk about mucociliary function. Whether you like to believe it or not, your your upper airways uh, and some of your uh, trans- transmitting airways are lined with a blanket of snot, and this blanket of snot lies on a 
a, a bed of cells that have little hairs on them. And what happens is as you uh, basically inhale debris or foreign material, that, mu- that mucus layer basically attracts that debris, like much like a flypaper does. And then the ciliary action of the cells lining the airways push that um, um, blanket of snot up to the mouth in what's called an ab-oral direction, where what you <clears throat> you clear your throat and then you swallow it. This is known as a mucociliary escalator. Now, general anesthesia and volatile anesthetics have been demonstrated to increase, um, excuse me, to decrease the mucociliary function to decrease alveolar macrophage quantity and activity. So the white cells that live in the alveolus are decreased in their function as well as their actual numbers. Now, the Volatile anesthetics, which is a nice way of saying the gases, uh, have also been demonstrated to increase the alveolar capillary permeability. Okay, so the alveolar capillary permeability is basically how fluid would actually go from uh, the capillary into the alveolus. Volatile anesthetics also inhibit surfactant release. What is surfactant? Surfactant, you'll, particularly if you have an experience with infants, surfactant is the chemical that allows basically the alveolus of the lung unit to remain open. It does this by decreasing surface tension. And particularly in children who have IRDS, there's been some research in adults uh, with ARDS uh, by using um, uh, surfactant uh, basically to imp- and try to improve the lung function. And all of these changes potentially alter the responsiveness to the circulating endogenous substances. Now, there is a decrease in the functional residual capacity, or the FRC, by 15 to 20%. Now, you might ask, what is the functional residual capacity? You oxygenate not only when you inhale, but also when you exhale. An example that I like to tell the residents is imagine somebody, if you've ever seen somebody get a brain death assessment. When we do a brain death assessment for somebody who's suffered, say, a traumatic brain injury, you put the patient on CPAP, uh, and the patient, and you put the ventilator on pause. And what will happen is the patient's saturation will remain the same, uh, and after several minutes, you draw a blood gas, and the, the saturation may be 100%, but uh, your PCO2, your partial pressure of carbon dioxide, will be elevated. And if it elevates beyond a certain threshold, uh, that will help with several other diagnostic factors secure the diagnosis of brain death. Well, why is it that you cannot be moving air in and out of your lungs, but your oxygenation status remains the same, but your ventilation gets worse? Because oxygenation uh, occurs through basically diffusion. And the greater your functional residual capacity, the better you're able to oxygenate. And when somebody's on a mechanical ventilator, we use things like PEEP and so forth. So by having somebody on a volatile anesthetic, it will decrease your FRC 15 to 20%. And a decrease in lung volumes that are seen rapidly after the induction of a general anesthesia. Now these effects result in causing atelectasis and an increase in ventilation perfusion mismatch. And this is basically uh, presents as a wide AA gradient and often just frank hypoxemia. Now, patients commonly require, after a general anesthesia, supplemental oxygen and even uh, positive expiratory pressure or PEEP uh, to overcome these effects of particular loss of the functional residual capacity. Now, for these reasons, uh, having somebody on a T-piece immediately after a general anesthesia is typically uh, to be avoided because it can actually worsen the inherent postoperative problems that occur by loss of your functional residual capacity from the general anesthetic. Now, not all uh, effects of the general anesthesia uh, should be considered negative, um, and 
uh, those of you who are surgeons know that we like to rib and, and have fun at their anesthesiologists. Uh, we accuse, blame, and criticize the AVCs. But uh, in fact, all volatile anesthetics are the most pro- potent bronchodilators available. So something to consider in somebody who is in refractory bronchospasm. Uh, but there is somewhat of a, a consideration is that the uh, volatile anesthetics are given by a um, uh, endotracheal tube, and the presence of an endotracheal tube by itself actually can uh, induce some bronchospasm. So there is some give and take on that. Now, some of these effects are certainly profound. You know, losing 15 to 20 percent of your FRC when you have borderline lung function is something that uh, could be certainly uh, problematic. And uh, some of these effects are certainly uh, could be avoided or uh, even uh, reduced substantially by using uh, a regional anesthetic. And certainly that's why if you can use a regional anesthetic, perhaps in the example of this woman here who has a burn limited to her lower extremity, that might be uh, a better way to go to avoid all of these potential complications we're seeing by the administration of the volatile anesthetics. Now let's go through some of the common uh, pulmonary changes we see. We've already mentioned that following the initiation of a general anesthesia, we see a rather uh, dramatic drop in the FRC by 15 to 20 percent. Other changes we see uh, in regards to the diaphragmatic function is certainly decreased, uh, and there's an attenuated ventilatory response to both hypercarbia as well as hypoxia. And therefore, we take all these changes together, it really increases the risk of a patient having postoperative hypoxemia as well as a, uh, the, uh, a clinician being able to uh, appreciate the patients in distress because they've basically lost their ability to try to compensate for problems with hypoxemia, hypercarbia. We've mentioned that there's a reduction of FRC. Uh, you can also have a reduction of your force vital capacity, almost 40% of baseline values in the immediate postoperative period. And we think, okay, well, the patient's going to go to the recovery room. They're going to wash the patient there. And I don't need to worry about these things once the patient gets to the floor or the intensive care unit. Not so, because a lot of these changes that we see, these profound drops in your FRC, these profound drops in your functional uh, excuse me, your forced vital capacity uh, will not fully recover for about two weeks following the uh, presence of the general anesthesia. Now, this places the FRC at or below closing volumes in many patients, and this consequently leads to uh, increased risk of pulmonary complications. What is this idea of closing volumes? Well, when we talk about the definition of atelectasis, uh, uh, from a physiological standpoint, atelectasis can be defined as when your Functional residual capacity is less than your closing volumes. And if you imagine what a closing volume is, not all of our airways um, are remain open all of the time. If you think about your trachea and your bronchi, they're certainly cartilaginous and they remain with a patent lumen. But as you get farther and farther down into the lung to the, the subsegmental bronchi and so forth, they will actually begin to collapse. The best description I ever heard of this was um, in a, um, a university press book uh, called Basic Science Review for the General Surgeon. It was a great book to read when I was a surgical resident because it went over some of these basic physiological approaches. But when your closing volume, is, when your FRC, your functional residual capacity, is less than your closing volumes, that predisposes you to atelectasis which is something we're aware that almost all of our surgical patients have after a volatile anesthetic. So this is why in the postoperative period, we're so much about using things like coughing and deep breathing, incentive spirometry, and getting the patient out of bed because all those things are maneuvers to improve the patient's functional residual capacity.
the function of the diaphragm is also decreased uh, after a uh, volatile anesthetic. It really, the diaphragm lacks the ability to generate a normal amount of force uh, after upper abdominal or thoracic surgery. Now, this effect is not really explained by any kind of residual neuromuscular blockade, nor does uh, pain management actually correct the improvement in the, or cause improvement in the function of the diaphragm. Uh, volatile anesthetics will also blunt the ventilatory response to both hypercarbia and hypoxia. Therefore, a uh, given patient's particular uh, physiological compensation to a, a drop in their uh, oxygen level or an increase in their carbon dioxide level can be offset by the diaphragm who has been uh, in a patient who has been on volatile anesthetics. So how do we determine which of our patients are at increased risk of having a, a pulmonary problem after an anesthetic? Well, remember the patient we talked about, you know, inoperable lung cancer, uh, already has a pneumonia, which she's being treated for in the community, um, on steroids for for her uh, COPD, oxygen, still smoking, blows herself up while on oxygen. That's somebody, that's not a reach, but to figure out, yeah, this is, patient's going to have a problem with an anesthetic. But what about a, a more um, typical type of patient? Well, somewhere between 30 and 80% of patients will suffer a post-operative pulmonary complication. Now, when I see numbers that are that wide, between 30 and 80%, the first thing you really need to think about is that with that kind of a wide predictor of a number, it really means that we don't have a really good grasp of the things that are going to cause pulmonary complications because we would say that 30 to 35% or, or 25 to 30%. But when you see 30 to 80, that should initially be a red herring that we don't have a really great grasp of, of all of the problems associated with anesthetics and, and pulmonary interaction. Now, in 1968, uh, Whiteman evaluated 785 patients and determined that those who had smoked and had COPD or were older than 70 had an increase in postoperative uh, productive cough, fever, or new oscillatory changes. Now, upper abdominal or thoracic procedures were associated with a 20-fold increase in post-operative pulmonary complications. Subsequently to that, there was a study in 1992 by Penderson and colleagues, and they determined the relative risks of developing post-operative pulmonary complications. And if your age was greater than 70, you had a relative risk of developing pulmonary uh, complications of 7.46. Uh, if your age was 50 to 69, relative risk was 4.14. Major abdominal surgery had a major risk of 3.9. Emergency surgery had a relative risk of 3.49. COPD had a relative risk of 3.13. Now, this is what I think is interesting because emergency surgery had a relative risk greater than uh, COPD. Now, uh, when I was 36 years old, I had some emergency abdominal surgery, actually several of them, uh, and I would have not have thought that my relative risk of developing pulmonary complications was greater than that of a patient who had COPD. Now, if your age is between 30 and 49, your relative risk is 2.29. General anesthesia time greater than 180 minutes had a relative risk time, a relative risk of 1.52. Now, this was in 1992. So taking that data and, and kind of summarizing it, it can basically is that you have an increased risk with increasing age. Uh, you have an increased risk with upper abdominal or thoracic surgery. Uh, this is some of the... Uh, um, push behind laparoscopic surgery, particularly in the upper abdomen. Uh, you have an increased risk of del with delirium or cerebral vascular accidents, emergency surgery, prior lung disease, especially COPD, as well as smoking. 
Well, how do we evaluate uh, a patient uh, who has any of these risk factors and determine whether they're a suitable candidate? Well, uh, we used to do a lot of things like spirometry uh, and the like, and what we have learned is that clinical variables are superior to sp- uh, spirometry in predicting postoperative pulmonary complications. In fact, there's a study uh, in which patients not taking bronchodilators and had a normal chest X-ray suffered no postoperative pulmonary complications, while if you took a cohort of patients who were on bronchodilators and had an abnormal chest X-ray, they had a 33% uh, rate of complications. Now, historically, uh, physicians have been taught that if a patient had a forced expiratory volume uh, uh, at one second, which is known as an FEV1, of less than a liter, that those patients were considered unacceptable risk for surgery. Now, the world has changed, and and we're seeing uh, increased uh, surgery on unreasonably high-risk patients particularly those patients who have had a lung reduction surgery. And uh, even in the most severest lung disease in those cases, with an average of FEV1 of less than 0.68, have actually benefited from surgical procedures. Uh, now, that's certainly difficult to generalize to somebody who you know might be having a, a lap coli or another type of operation. But uh, clearly, you want to do a reasonably good clinical assessment on the patient to determine uh, what their pulmonary risk factor, what the pulmonary risk factors are. What about the patient you're taking care of uh, who has asthma? Well, bronchospasm clearly increases a patient's perioperative risk, but uh, I'm not aware of uh, any controlled study that has been able to show that there's an increased risk by controlling a patient's bronchospasm. Uh, That being said, if there is severe bronchospasm under anesthesia, it can actually be caused by the presence of the endotracheal tube or the foreign body, and that can actually make it difficult to adequately ventilate or oxygenate the patient. Now, remember what we've said is that volatile anesthetics are actually very good bronchodilators. Now, if a patient is in a really profound bronchospasm, this can create a situation known as rock bag and, and the reason why it's called rock bag is that it's kind of like squeezing an ambu bag of somebody who's got a tension pneumothorax. You really can't ventilate the patient at all. This is clearly a life-threatening condition. Um, uh, inhaled uh, beta-2 agonists and steroids are really the mainstay of treatment as well as for prophylaxis. Uh, in fact, steroids are probably the most useful. Uh, commonly used doses, about uh, 40 milligrams of prednisone for two days before surgery can hopefully uh, prophylax uh, some of the risks associated with this. Um, there is no increase in postoperative complications such as infection or wound healing uh, in patients with asthma. Uh, a steroid taper is not necessary uh, when doses are used uh, of steroids uh, that we're talking about here for a short period of time, and we're seeing more and more of that literature when we're talking about patients um, with um, talking about adrenal insufficiency that uh, we probably don't need to be uh, using um, a big pulse doses of steroids to avoid an adrenal insufficiency situation. Now, patients with COPD, which is the patient that initially started this conversation, really goes without saying that postoperative complications are, are common in patients who have COPD. Again, you really want to get a, a really good clinical assessment of all of the patient's preoperative problems. Spirometry uh, does not have a role in routine preoperative evaluations of these patients. Uh, use of medications uh, such as inhaled bronchodilators and or use of steroids is commonly useful. Uh, the use of theophylline is clearly limited uh, in the perioperative period because uh, theophylline will increase your heart rate it will aggravate uh, arrhythmias, and therefore uh, these patients have a lot of things going on, and typically they don't really tolerate uh, the arrhythmias very well. Preoperative physical therapy and exercise may be useful as an adjunct and, and risk limitation in a circumstance where you have 
uh, and a scheduled elective operation. The kind of procedures that we're doing, people don't know when they're going to get hurt, and therefore yeah, that's not really uh, an option. Arterial blood gases, not routinely ordered. Uh, room air oxygen saturation, history and physical examination are really the, the, the keystones of the preoperative evaluation here. Preoperative chest X-ray is ordered with the patients with severe COPD or the patient has an age greater than 65 years of age. Now, a common question that we often deal with, and it's a great question to have fun with the residents, is what should you tell someone about smoking in the preoperative period? Should we tell them to quit? If I see a patient today in clinic and I'm going to take them to surgery two days from now to repair their hernia or take out their gallbladder, and they tell me they smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. What should I tell them about smoking? Or they ask, or his wife asks, Doc, you need to tell him to quit smoking because he's got surgery in two days. What is the answer to that? Well, if a patient's got a big smoking history, say more than a 20-pack year uh, history of smoking, it's clear that they're at increased risk for the development of post-operative pulmonary complications. Now, when smokers stop at least 48 hours preoperatively, their carboxyhemoglobin levels will drop to normal. Some of the cilia begin to beat again. Remember we talked about that mucociliary escalator that helps us kind of clean out the soot and garbage from our lungs. So it starts to be able to clean out some of the junk that we'll, we'll collect in the lungs. And as well as the cardiovascular effect, of nicotine uh, are, are start to become abolished. Now, if they stop for more than two weeks preoperatively, their sputum volume will be reduced. Okay, that's that copper <clears throat> smoke, all that swill that they, they produce. Ideally, they should refrain from smoking for eight weeks preoperatively. And eight weeks. Um, the studies have shown that it's the duration of eight weeks of cessation that is required to lower the perioperative risks. So that is the, the answer to the question. Certainly not smoking uh, for 48 hours is, is a good thing, uh, but in order to really have uh, a, a impact on your perioperative pulmonary risk, uh, a person has to stop smoking for eight weeks. An article that I like to kind of uh, reference, I can never say the gentleman's name correctly, and I apologize, but by Bepourcien, uh it was an article in Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2002. Uh, it was entitled, Incidence of Major Pulmonary Morbidity After Pneumonectomy Associated with Timing of Smoking Cessation. So this is stopping smoking for a pneumonectomy, pretty big operation. But what they found was that patients who went a pneumonectomy demonstrated that smoking cessation for less than a month versus greater than a month for less than a month was associated with a significant increase in the rate of pneumonia, ARDS, and death. So if you're going to advise people to stop smoking, you really need to have them uh, be in that you know greater than four weeks or greater than eight, hour, uh, eight weeks. Now, one thing that we have to be mindful of is that... Um, Smoking is basically an addiction to nicotine. Nicotine is a very powerful addiction, and I think a lot of times uh, we take that for granted. Um, patients come into the, uh, the uh, hospital and uh, they have uh, a questionable uh, abuse of alcohol. We take great measures to avoid for them uh, to develop del- so they don't develop delirium tremens for alcohol withdrawal. We know that that creates substantial problems. We would never um, expect somebody to come in the hospital uh, after being addicted to benzodiazepines or heroin and expect them to t- stop cold turkey. It is my opinion 
and I say that my opinion that I don't think that we warrant the respect to a nicotine addiction um, that it really deserves. And and we'll see this is that patients will come in and we will uh, basically inject our value system and saying, well, you know, you shouldn't smoke, and, and therefore, you know. We're, you're stopping cold turkey. And I, I think that creates a wedge in the provider and patient relationship. Uh, now, in an intensive care unit, there's not a whole lot you can do when somebody's on a mechanical ventilator. But you have to be mindful of that perhaps we need to replace nicotine to treat the nicotine withdrawal in the post-operative period. Uh, use of nicotine patch, uh, though it's not without potential negative effects because of nicotine, you know, certainly causes uh, vasoconstriction, and it does have a negative impact on wound healing. If patients ask me whether they can go smoke in the post-operative period, uh, I, I don't restrict them as long as we don't have a reason for them not to uh, take themselves out to the smoking area. Now, in the intensive care unit, when they're on a mechanical ventilator on vasopressors, um, obviously we're not going to allow them to smoke and we are not going to uh, provide them with nicotine in those circumstances. So if we go back to our patient uh, that we mentioned earlier, a patient with end-stage lung disease uh, who is very tachypnic, these are some of the risk factors that we could talk about to families that will increase the risks of an anesthetic uh, and perhaps cause decompensation of the patient's pulmonary function. I get a lot of emails asking me for consideration of various topics as well as asking me questions regarding uh, former podcasts. And um, I try to answer emails the best I can, and I figured perhaps if somebody has a question that perhaps more listeners would benefit from uh, the questions. And I got a question shortly after the um, podcast on, on blood gas, blood gases and me- uh, management of acid-base problems. Uh, and the scenario was that uh, it was from a surgical resident. It was telling me that uh, typically in their unit, when the patient has a um, pH that uh, their bicarb might be in the, in the 15s or 20s, that they will administer sodium bicarbonate. Uh, and was that right or wrong? Well, the answer really is is what's going on clinically. If a patient is hemodynamically stable, I would question the need to actually uh, replace the sodium bicarbonate because you have to remember that if somebody has a metabolic acidosis, if somebody has a uh, bicarb of, say, 18 or 16, they're having it for a reason. And this goes into the analogy I like to use a lot, that if the muffler falls off your car, you replace the muffler, not turn up the radio. The, a patient who's in the intensive care unit with a low sodium bicarb, their principal problem is not sodium bicarbonate-emia. Their problem is, is they have a metabolic condition that is creating an acidosis. They have either anemia, they have an oxygen debt, they have sepsis, they have poor perfusion, something that's creating that bicarb to drop, something that's creating that acidosis. And so you need to correct the underlying cause. Now, I would consider replacement of the sodium bicarbonate if the patient was having hemodynamic instability that I felt was related to the acidemia. Because um, a lot of times patients, you're endogenous or exogenous catecholamines don't seem to work well uh, in conditions of profound acidosis. And typically, uh, I will feel comfortable if somebody has a pH of less than 7.2 and not giving them sodium bicarbonate. The other thing about administration of sodium bicarbonate, and I'll have fun with with the residents of Vanderbilt with this as well, is they'll say, well, the patient's bicarb was... 
15, uh, 80 kilogram male, and um, he was hemodynamically unstable, and, and we gave him bicarbonate. I was like, okay, well, let's not debate whether the patient needs sodium bicarbonate or not. Let's debate, for instance, how much sodium bicarbonate you gave. Because if you were replacing somebody's sodium bicarbonate, there is, you can actually calculate the amount of bicarbonate they need. Um, if we take our 80 kilogram individual and we say that they had uh, a bicarb of 15, um, how much, and I gave them an amp of bicarb. Well, let's figure out what their bicarb deficit was. So what we want the bicarb to be is 24. So you take basically your expected minus your observed. So 24 minus 15 is 9. We said the patient is 80 kilograms. Typically, sodium bicarbonate has a volume of distribution of about 40%. In a critically ill patient, we could probably extend that because of increased volumes of distribution in critical illness to 50%. The other advantage of it is it makes the math easy. So we have a uh, observed minus expected of 9, a volume of distribution of roughly 80 kilograms, 40. So 9 times 40 is roughly 360. 360 middle equivalents is your bicarbonate deficit. Basically, calculated what you need to get from 15 to 24. So when you give somebody one amp of sodium bicarbonate, how much bicarbonate are we giving them? We're giving them 50 middle equivalents. So they need 360, we're giving them 50. Each amp of sodium bicarbonate has 50 middle equivalents. So when we say our patient has a 360 middle equivalent, a 360 MEQ deficit, that's a 7 amp deficit. Typically, a safe thing to do uh, is to give the patient half of their deficit and then reevaluate. So in that circumstance, if I felt that the patient really needed a sodium bicarbonate, I would calculate out their bicarbonate deficit, give half, reevaluate, and in that circumstance, appropriate dose would be 3 amps of sodium bicarbonate. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast ICU Rounds. Once again, my name is Jeffrey Guy. If you find the podcast useful, by all means, check out um, or leave a positive feedback uh, on uh, iTunes. Uh, other podcasts that I have available are Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, which uh, is a companion podcast for a pharmacology book that I wrote for pre-hospital providers, as well as the PHTLS podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.